Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what is the necrobiome and why do some think it's crucial for restoring our ecosystems? More and more zoo animals across the U.S. are getting their own special animal vaccines, but why doesn't your pet cat need one? And Disney's animatronics are getting a huge AI makeover. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So I talk a lot about fossils on this show, and when discussing how a specimen ended up in the place where we found it thousands of years later, the explanation is often something like the animal got trapped somewhere or died of some injury, and then it just stayed there exactly where it perished for millennia. It wasn't moved or somehow disposed of. But how often do you encounter that now? Huge animal carcasses just left out to decompose exactly where they died? I mean, sure, you may encounter the picked-at corpse of a smaller animal in the woods on occasion, but even those often get cleaned up by park rangers eventually. The huge carcasses of predators that turned into some of our more famous fossils, well, those kinds of animals don't even really exist anymore, and many smaller ones have been domesticated, earmarked essentially, to be turned into food or killed by human hunters. So we just don't see huge dead animal bodies littering the land anymore. As Isabel Kaminsky puts it in BBC's Future Planet, we have sanitized the land of the spectacle of death. But did all those carcasses play a key role in our ecosystem? Would leaving more dead animal bodies out in the open help restore deteriorating ecosystems? That's the theory of scientists who study the necrobiome. Coined by Eric Benbow, a forensic entomologist and microbial ecologist, the necrobiome refers to those animal carcasses and the species that depend on them. Quoting BBC, the many species of the necrobiome perform essential roles returning organic matter and nutrients to the food chain and removing potential sources of infectious disease. Some play other important roles in the ecosystem, for example, as pollinators, end quote. To paint you a picture, here's an excerpt from a 2015 article in The Atlantic discussing the role of the necrobiome in human forensics, quote, A body falls in the woods, and although no one is around to hear it, a clock starts ticking. It's not made of gears or springs, but of bacteria, fungi, and other microbes. The corpse dumps a huge flood of nutrients into the earth, a blend of fats and proteins that stands out among the carbohydrates typically found in leaf litter. Quickly, a dedicated coterie of bacteria, fungi, and nematode worms emerges to dine on this artisanal feast. There's this complete overhaul of the living community in the surrounding area, says Jessica Metcalf of the University of Colorado Boulder. These colonizing bacteria are found ubiquitously in soils, but are usually rare. When animals die on top of them, it must be like manna from heaven, and their populations explode. Dead animals are big, concentrated blobs of protein and fat, and these microbes are lurking in the soil, ready to start eating our bodies when we die, says Stephen Allison from University of California, Irvine, end quote. So corpses are excellent for the ground, for the nature around them, but they're also good for fellow animals, scavengers in particular. Or at least that's the theory. There hasn't traditionally been a ton of funding devoted to the study of decaying animal flesh or carrion. 
For one, it's just, you know, not the most pleasant of topics. It reminds us of our own mortality. It also smells awful. Binbao calls decomposing vertebrate carcasses, quote, naturally repulsive, even for those of us who study it, end quote. Plus, nature is actually very good and efficient at breaking down dead bodies, which is great for the aforementioned reasons, but makes it tough to get in there and study it before it decays too much, and that's if you can beat a scavenger to the punch. Quoting the BBC, Despite such hurdles, in recent years the field has blossomed. Early studies in the 1950s and 60s found a general and predictable process of decomposition as a carcass moves from death to bones, and there are now researchers in every environment and biome, from deep-sea abysses to mountain ranges, studying how carrion decomposes and the effects of that decomposition on ecosystems. Jennifer Petchel, an entomologist at Michigan State University, says technological advances in biology, chemistry, and computational sciences have helped. These have vastly improved our capabilities to answer specific questions with increased accuracy and precision. From what we do know, there is reason to worry. A paper in Global Change Biology examining scavenger studies from around the world found that hunting and the loss and modification of habitats had a big impact on the number and diversity of vertebrates feeding on animal carcasses. The researchers warned that scavengers are unlikely to be performing their roles in the ecosystem as well as they could be, and make the case for management and conservation actions to preserve scavengers worldwide." End quote. Fortunately, a major study is about to be underway in national parks across Germany. Starting in September of next year, researchers will be leaving animal carcasses to decay on the ground and using camera traps, soil sampling, and genetic tests to study the effects on scavengers, invertebrates, and the land itself. Quoting again from the BBC, One accidental experiment in death ecology might hold lessons for the German project. In the Oostvaardersplassen Nature Reserve in the Netherlands, one of the oldest rewilding sites in Europe, the sudden death of thousands of large herbivores during a cold snap several years ago showed researchers that large carcasses can significantly increase the numbers of invertebrates. It benefits vegetation, too. The research found a big increase in plant matter around the carcasses months after the animals had died. But the deaths also sparked public concerns about animal rights, and the number of animals in the reserve has since been limited. Separate research into a herd of reindeer killed by lightning in Norway in 2016 found that the animal carcasses provided a hugely important temporary source of nutrients for a wide range of species, including golden eagles, ravens, and wolverines." End quote. Now, in addition to the relative lack of research on its benefits, intentionally leaving out carcasses or placing them there faces hurdles on a sort of public relations front. It has to be explained to people, which can be a sensitive subject, and it can occasionally attract unwanted scavengers and cause issues for farmed animals, not to mention nearby tourists and other human visitors not privy to the experiment being run. But ecologist Christian von Hormann, whose research in the Bavarian National Forest is informing the study in Germany, believes that people will eventually understand. It's about the environment and the survival of many different animal species. It's a positive thing, even though it can look gruesome, and reminds us perhaps unfavorably of mortality and the cruelness of the world. But von Hormann reminds us that it's very natural, and we need to let that natural order play out. Maybe there's even some beauty in that. You may be aware, I think I even mentioned it on this show, that some animals at zoos have been receiving a special animal version of the COVID-19 vaccine, starting with the great apes at the San Diego Zoo all the way back in February. 
Now, more than 80 zoos, sanctuaries, and research institutions across the U.S., all places where animals are in frequent close contact with humans, have requested doses of the vaccine from veterinary pharmaceutical company Zootis. According to CNN, Zotus first began tests for their animal vaccine after reports from Hong Kong in February 2020 of a dog contracting COVID-19, first focusing their testing on dogs and cats. And there have been several confirmed cases in animals, mostly mammals, who have been in close contact with humans. Two lions at a zoo in India sadly even died after testing positive for COVID-19, although the majority of animals have only had mild symptoms. Scott Larson, the head veterinarian at the Denver Zoo, told CNN last month, quote, We're concerned about the animals' overall populations and long-term survival on the planet. There's been concern about wild populations of these animals, some of the last on Earth, and what may happen when the virus gets into these animals. We're just trying to do the best we can, end quote. And from National Geographic, quote, the experimental vaccine, says Mahesh Kumar, senior vice president of global biologics at Zoetis, works similarly to the Novavax vaccine for humans, which is currently in large-scale efficacy tests. Instead of using mRNA, like the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines, a viral vector, like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, or a live virus, it uses synthetic spike proteins to trigger the same antibodies the live virus would. The vaccines are being distributed to zoos on an experimental basis. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is not considering commercial approval of any of the vaccines for animals, with the exception of mink on fur farms where outbreaks have spread widely, Kumar says. At least 12,000 mink have died from COVID-19 on fur farms in the U.S. alone and are believed to have transmitted the virus to humans in some cases. Prior to each shipment, Zotus must get case-by-case -case approval from both the USDA and state veterinarian where the zoo is located, end quote. For now, Zotus is only focused on the U.S., even though they've had many requests from abroad due to the logistics of even domestic distribution. The Oakland and San Diego zoos have agreed to do antibody testing of the vaccinated animals, which will help provide some much-needed data on the vaccine's efficacy across different species. You know, with zoos so focused on vaccinating their animals, you may be wondering, should you vaccinate your pets? The World Small Animal Veterinary Association, or WSAVA, says no, or at least not yet. There's no evidence yet that pets like cats and dogs can transmit the virus back to humans, and in all documented cases, they've had relatively mild symptoms. Zoo animals are also of a larger concern because they are regularly exposed to more humans. Even when zoos are closed or limiting capacity, there's a whole slew of different caretakers seeing each animal regularly. Kumar's best advice for making sure your pet doesn't get COVID is to simply vaccinate yourself. And while it's unlikely that approval for Zotus would ever get to the point of it being available for everyone's pets due to all of the red tape and complications there, can you just imagine if we somehow ended up with more dogs vaccinated in some locations than humans? I mean, the Oakland Zoo in California, where more than half of their animals are fully vaccinated, technically has a better vaccination rate than some U.S. states right now. Kind of an awful thought, I know. And yes, as you'd expect, National Geographic reports that there was swift and shrill backlash to the news of zoo animals being vaccinated by anti-vaxxers. A lot of them said that they'd be reporting the zoos to PETA for animal abuse. But then PETA put out a statement of support for the vaccines, saying that they'd been clinically tested and that the benefits far outweigh the risks of infection. And man, when even PETA is saying it's okay, that's really saying something. 
Now, the last thing that I will say on this is that the animals' incentives for getting vaccinated, at least at the Oakland Zoo, sound way more fun than all the vaccine incentives in my area. Here in New York City, people are starting to get, like, free metro cards and entered into various lotteries, and that's all cool. But the Oakland Zoo baboons got fruit snacks, and the gibbons got marshmallows, the tigers got beef tenderloin shish kebabs, and Kern the brown bear gotta eat whipped cream straight from the can. I mean, let people pound a can of whipped cream or a whole bag of cookies after the jab and just see how many more line up to get it. Well, the big news out of Disney Parks this past week was their elimination of their free Fast Pass, which will be replaced with a $15 to $20 Genie Plus add-on to their new Disney Genie app. But the more interesting news, in my opinion, came from a New York Times report by Brooks Barnes about the huge leap forward that Disney Imagineers are currently working on with the park's animatronics. Now, even if you've never visited Disneyland or Walt Disney World, you're likely familiar with the so-called audio animatronics that fill many of the rides and experiences at the parks. There's the dolls in It's a Small World, Abraham Lincoln in the Hall of Presidents, dancing ghouls in the Haunted Mansion, and pirates banging drinks together in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, endlessly looping as riders pass by with scripted audio sometimes playing right in your ears in the carriage. These animatronics blew people away when they first debuted in the 1960s. Now, they're still beloved, but in a kitschy, nostalgic kind of way. You know, it's hard to even think about how these could have ever been impressive, especially for young kids today. Amusing and lovable, sure, but not magical. There have been some advances over the years with some robot characters getting more and more interactive and visually impressive, but now they're working on incorporating artificial intelligence with the ultimate goal of lifelike robotic characters freed from the shackles of their rides and podiums to walk around the park genuinely interacting with visitors. Yeah, for real, and if you click through to the New York Times link, you'll see just how lifelike a Groot prototype is. Well, lifelike for a CGI tree, anyways, but still, it is really mind-blowing to look at. And it's more than a little, I don't know, concerning? You know, especially when you find out that one of the senior roboticists on the project previously worked at Boston Dynamics. You know, the terrifying robot dogs that bear more than a passing resemblance to the murderous ones from Black Mirror. As Twitter user Kat said of Disney's sentient robot character announcement, quote, Y'all know Westworld isn't a how-to guide, right? End quote. And writer Spencer Perry echoed a lot of people's concerns by tweeting, quote, The Westworld jokes are apt, but this to me reads more like not wanting to pay people to perform as the characters anymore. End quote. Now, for Disney's part, they say that they have no plans to replace their human cast members, especially the ones playing humans. Their focus at the moment is on creatures from properties like Marvel and Star Wars. You know, huge ones like the Hulk and tiny ones like Groot and Baby Yoda. Some of which, it seems from Reporter Barnes's visit to the workshop, will still have human actors inside of these, like, giant full-body exoskeletons, kind of like a smart, supersized version of a mascot costume. Others will pretty much be fully autonomous. Quoting the New York Times, Cameras and sensors will give these robots the ability to make on-the-fly choices about what to do and say. Custom software allows animators and engineers to design behaviors—happy, sad, sneaky—and convey emotion." End quote. 
which Barnes reports Groot did when he met the robot. When Barnes didn't greet Groot, quote, his shoulders slumped and he seemed to look at me with puppy dog eyes. Don't be sad, I blurted out. He grinned and broke into a little dance before balancing on one foot with outstretched arms, end quote. And that impressive little guy is just an early prototype. Leslie Evans, a senior Imagineering executive, spoke of the next steps, saying, quote, All of this technology must disappear, which takes a crazy amount of engineering. We don't want anyone thinking, that's the most sophisticated robot I've ever encountered. It has to be, look, it's Groot, end quote. Now, if the goal is to get the experience back to young kids genuinely having no clue that these are robots and really thinking that these are the characters from their screens just come to life in front of them, well... Again, check out the GIFs in the article because I think they are hauntingly close to that goal already. All right, well, that is it from me for this week. But as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.